Modern Animism Radio explores our connection to the plant, animal, mineral, human, and spiritual realms to help you live in divine relationship with all that is. You're listening to Modern Animism Radio. We share ideas on how to bring animism into your day-to-day life. And I'm your host, Laura Giles. Thanks for tuning in. We have a guest today, Dr. Anton Troyer. Dr. Troyer is a Princeton graduate, history professor, author of many books, and an Ojibwe scholar. He's going to share his perspective on why we need to learn our cultural languages and lots of other things. I can't wait to hear what he has to offer. But first, let's give gratitude. Acknowledge and thank the element of earth for the earth itself. As things are freezing and I'm missing putting my feet on the earth, I'm filled with gratitude knowing that it's there beneath us giving us a home and providing us with food. Acknowledge and thank the element of air for helping us to communicate clearly, be open to receiving the whispers of our ancestors, receiving divine inspiration and practicing discernment. Acknowledge and thank the element of fire for passion, power and responsibility. Acknowledge the element of water and thank you for helping us to go with the flow and purify ourselves. Acknowledge and thank our loving, helping ancestors from the human, plant, animal, and mineral kingdoms. I thank you for all the help that we receive that is both seen and unseen. As always, I send gratitude to you, our listeners, and if any of our content inspires you, please consider giving us a review or donating at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Pan Society. We love your comments. They let us know what resonates and what doesn't resonate with you. And if you want to join the conversation, you can always find us on our private Facebook group or find me on Quora. All right. Our guest today is Dr. Anton Troyer. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, sure. I'd like to start uh, with a little background on you. So as I said in our brief introduction, you're a Princeton grad. You did your graduate work at the University of Minnesota, Minnesota, and now are a professor at Bemidji State in Languages and Indigenous Studies. You've written a ton of books, including The Cultural Toolbox, which is a new release. You're the editor of the only academic journal in the Ojibwe language. You've sat on many organizational boards and have received more than 40 prestigious awards and fellowships, including ones from the American Philosophical Society, the National Endowment of Humanities for the Humanities, the National Science Foundation and MacArthur Foundation, the Bush Foundation, and the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation. The Bemidji State mission statement is to educate people to live inspired lives. And it seems that you are most certainly an example of that. So would you mind sharing a bit about the road that took you from where it all started to where you are now? Oh, sure. I don't know exactly where to start. Maybe by the time I had finished high school, I think my goal was to get out of town and never come back. I, uh, I think a lot of high schoolers have that idea. I had grown up both on and near the Leech Lake Reservation, which is one of the Ojibwe reservations in Northern Minnesota. And I thought somehow kind of naively that there was a way to escape maybe the brambled racial borderland of my youth and thought that I would be able to do that when I headed off to college. Of course, it was naive because the brambled racial borderland followed me everywhere that I went. And by the time I'd finished college, I probably traumatized my parents by telling them that I was not going to be taking a job or going to graduate school. My plan was to go home and walk the earth. And I wanted to spend time with my language and culture and things like that. They said, well, good luck with that. We're done paying for everything because you have an Ivy League education now. And that's what I did. I I ended up um, connecting with a very old spiritual leader named Archie Mose. And he was born in 1901. Uh, He was about 12, first time he saw a white man. He was in his 30s, the first time that he saw a black man or a car. Uh, When I met him, he was in a small and humble but modern home watching WWF Smackdown on a TV and laughing loudly. Uh, But when I came in, he shut off the TV and looked at me and he said, oh, well, I've been waiting for you. And I remember thinking, well, how could you be waiting for me? You don't even know who I am. But he, he had had a dream 
and that someone was going to come to him and that I apparently looked like the person in his dream. So he kind of flung the door open to me. I ended up living on his couch, uh, kind of off and on, being his gopher, driving him around to ceremonies, traditional Ojibwe funerals. And through it all, I, I had a kind of holistic, immersive experience in my tribal language and culture. And it was really quite transformative for me. I did, as my parents predicted, you know, run out of money and have to figure out other things in my life. I eventually applied to graduate school and uh, pursued a, a PhD in history, thinking I would use our language to do oral histories and things like that. Although as my career kind of unfolded, I was pulled in multiple directions and I still am, although they all intersect for me. So some of my work is in history. Um, some is actually with our tribal language. So, you know, I've got 20 books out now um, and probably half a dozen are related to the Ojibwe language. So um, editor on a couple of dictionaries and been working on a number of literary projects with regard to our language and then some history books and some are kind of broad general reader books. Um, everything you wanted to know about Indians, but were afraid to ask. My last two uh, the Language Warriors Manifesto, How to Keep Our Languages Alive No Matter the Odds, is kind of a resource guide and personal narrative um, about how I and we have collectively been pursuing Indigenous language revitalization. And the very most recent one, The Cultural Toolbox, Traditional Ojibwe Living in the Modern World, is kind of a window into the cultural beliefs and practices of our family. Uh, and among the other things that happened when Archie Mose passed away, um, I was kind of pushed up to do a lot of um, spiritual leadership in our native communities. So today I officiate at funerals and life ceremonies, um, you know, do naming ceremonies for people and things like that. And so I choose to live in my native community. I'm at the service of our people. Uh, I kind of got one foot in the wigwam and one in a ivory tower. Uh, and to me, all of that, you know, is all intricately connected to one another. I also do a lot of kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion work, uh, which connects to all of this too. So how did you go from college to, I want to go walk the earth? Was there a moment <laughs> or that's a big oh, shift? It was a big shift. I, you know, I think I, entered college thinking, you know, that I might go into the law. My mother had actually become the first female native attorney in the state of Minnesota. And I was quite inspired oh, wow. by her career path and just watching, you know, a feisty young native woman standing up to everybody in the institutions of patriarchy and whiteness and things like that. Um, and I think by the time I was a little further along in my college journey, I realized I might be a good lawyer, but I don't know if I would be a happy one. And I just felt called to, you know, more deeply explore, you know, my cultural toolbox and language. Um, and then I, I don't know if you call it serendipity or something that was meant to be my connection with Archie, I think was transformative um, and kind of setting me on our native road. Ah, uh, okay. So, um, I've read your books <laughs> and I know that you didn't become fluent, uh, as a fluent of Jibwe speaker until adulthood. So what led you to that specifically? Because I mean, you know, the culture's all around you, but what, what was it that said that language is important? You know, I mean, I, I've always been curious and interested in languages, but I didn't value what even my mother had been trying to teach me and show me through my childhood until I put it behind me. And then I really saw much more of its value. I think, you know, the, the transition from being, you know, a native person in a native community to being like the Indian when I went to college mm -hmm. um, helped galvanize my understanding of the importance of that 
cultural toolbox. And my, my initial outreach to Archie was a curiosity about my ceremony and cultural path. But of course, everything in our ceremonial world is done in our tribal language. And mm -hmm. as I, you know, stumbled onto this journey, I just saw how central and important the language was. I, I fell in love with it. And when you fall in love with something, you're highly motivated to provide whatever it might need. Um, that's the key to being a great parent is falling in love with your kid. You know, the key to being a cultural practitioner is falling in love with your culture. And the key mm -hmm. to being a, a language, successful language learner, teacher, you know, carrier is falling in love with it. So that's what happened to me. Um, it wasn't so much an intention. It was, you know, a journey and it, it just took me somewhere. Mm -hmm. Do you have any stories about how learning to speak and think in Ojibwe changed the way that you see and interact in the world? Oh, for sure. There, there are many. Um, every language embodies the unique worldview of a people. And as I started to go deeper into the Ojibwe language, I, I really do think that I, I saw things differently and that I still do. Um, just a couple examples maybe about how the lens upon which we look at the world is so deeply influenced by the languages we use. In Ojibwe, one of the things that's really cool about the language is that the roots of words are known to everyday speakers of the language. And so you both have kind of dual meaning. Um, there's, for example, a word, you know, for a TV, and there's the deeper meaning behind it, mazanate sijigan, a, a box that reflects an image through light. So you get this thick description. Um, it also lends itself to plays on word, words and things like that. But in addition, you get these like deeper nuanced meanings and understandings. So for example, our word for an elder, Gichiaya'a, literally means great being. Our word for an elderly woman, Mindemuye, means one who holds things together and describes the role of the family matriarch. And so if you're speaking in Ojibwe, you don't have to say things like respect your elders. It's kind of built right in with any word you could use to talk about them. Um, there are many other things too, like, you know, the words for various animals, there's, there's kind of cultural or, you know, internal indigenous literary reference. Like we have a story, for example, about this bird that had feathers that were every color of the rainbow. You can kind of think of a toucan or something like that. We live in the Great Lakes and Northern Plains. So we, they're not an indigenous bird here, but we described this bird with these feathers of every color of the rainbow who, you know, in ancient times took pity on the native people who were suffering and struggling and did not have the gift of fire to warm them or to cook food or things like that. And this bird flew to the sun to try to retrieve warmth as a gift for us. And as the bird got closer and closer to the sun, the sun started to burn his feathers and char his beautiful singing voice and eventually succeeded and retrieved fire and brought it back to the earth as a gift to us. And we've had it ever since to warm our homes and cook our food. And the bird never recovered from this ordeal. And although the bird still survived to this day, their feathers are black and their voice is raspy. And once in a while, when the sun shines on the feathers of this bird, you can see a hint of their former glory in every color of the rainbow. And in Ojibwe, we call this bird ondeg. It means one who changes in the light. And in English, we'd know him as a crow. And so, in Ojibwe, when you say the word ondeg, the one who changes in the light, it invokes this understanding and refers to this story. And so it's just imbued with meaning. And I think everything in our language kind of does that. So there's no way to look at crows and think, oh, 
loud and obnoxious critter, mm -hmm. you know, um, because there's all this cultural and linguistic reinforcement of a very different understanding. So, um, so I've always enjoyed that and, and been moved by that in many different times and ways about how language encodes deeper meaning. Um, and then of course, there's all the people in that language and cultural universe whose connections and support and ceremony have been so meaningful in my life too, that just reinvigorate my commitment to those things. Mm. It's such a beautiful story. Um, for context and the benefit of those who are unfamiliar with Native American history in the USA, can you give us a little background on how the language was lost or almost lost? Oh, sure. Um, so first of all, right now, across the world, there are almost 7,000 languages still spoken. But of those 7,000 languages, about 2,500 are spoken by a tiny handful of speakers, like 10. And the future of those languages is in grave danger. There are really only 100 languages actively and widely taught at colleges and universities. And so while I think a lot of people are aware that climate change poses unique threats to the existence of whole species of animals um, and the ecosystems that they're intertwined in, there's less awareness that we also have an existential threat to whole bodies of human knowledge and ways of knowing as they are embedded in especially many indigenous languages and cultures. The reasons for this are complex, but you know, it has a lot to do with colonization. Um, white people were mean to each other for a long time, colonizing each other for a long time before they took it to the rest of the world. Um, through that process, Europeans um, obliterated many of their own um, indigenous earth-based worldviews and cultural practices um, and communal ways of structuring societies and things like that. But when Britain, France, Spain, Russia, you know, descended upon different parts of what's now America, they came with colonization as the operating framework. And colonization is taking one language, culture, religion, and using it to supplant all others. So the you know, extraction of natural resources, the supplanting of indigenous populations to make room for new colonial populations, um, you know, all of this also was intertwined with missionary movements and efforts to colonize and eradicate indigenous languages and cultures. So I think some of the chapters may be better known to Americans than others, but uh, the United States government, for example, made it policy to take Native children away from their families, send them to residential boarding schools, and administer harsh physical punishments if they spoke an Indigenous language. Well, those kids learned English very quickly, and after being in residential boarding schools from age six to age 18, uh, many could not speak the same language as their parents um, and had a high degree of assimilation and acculturation through no choice of their own. Um, there were many other efforts to assimilate Native people. There was a policy called relocation just in the 1950s that provided one-way transportation for Native people to urban areas um, and help with the first month's rent. And that changed the demography of the native population. Today, over half of the enrolled tribal citizens live off reservations in urban areas. Um, and so being part of a larger English speaking world also impacted language and culture retention. Um, all of our children, whether they're going to school on a reservation or you know, in a public school 
whether it's on or off the reservation, are for the most part receiving English medium education. Only recently, over the past 20 years, has there been an effort to create tribal medium schools where the tribal language might be the medium of instruction. And that's only in certain places where there are enough speakers and there's been a, a movement and to mobilize resources to support an effort like that. So most tribal languages are highly endangered. Um, you know, you've got hundreds of tribal languages, over 500 that were spoken just in the United States and Canada before contact, and you've got thousands in Central and South America. Today in the United States, there are around 150 tribal languages still spoken, but only 20 are spoken by children. Uh, and there has yet to be a major, you know, large scale mobilization of financial resources and support um, to stabilize and revitalize the indigenous languages that are still here. That is an ongoing effort that is indigenous led, under-resourced and just emerging, if, you know, in most tribal communities. Wow, um, that's awful. <laughs> yeah. Um, my siblings and I were not taught our native language, even though both my parents speak it, because they thought it would be better for us to be integrated into mainstream society. So can you speak to some of the challenges that multicultural children might face if this happens to them? Because I, I believe you live that. Yes, I think um, the impulse for any parent is to equip their children for a long, healthy, happy life. And because so much of, especially the grandparent generation um, and some of the parent generation suffered, um, whether they mm -hmm. were brought to residential boarding schools or maybe outed, marginalized, mistreated because they were language carriers and cultural carriers, they thought, many thought mistakenly that if they protected their children from being language carriers, it would protect them from that kind of mistreatment. And um, it did not protect everyone from mistreatment. Like, you know, racial profiling is not just about if you're a tribal language speaker, it's about color. Um, it's about systemic inequity, disadvantage, you know, and the fact that indigenous people have a life expectancy that is much lower than that of the general population uh, is part of that. And right when, you know, America finally quits demonizing that to the extent that they did and persecuting it the way that they did, the, the attitudinal adjustments have come with a little bit of lag time. So um, I think for some families that really added to the experience of, um, you know, disconnection with the intergenerational transmission of tribal languages. Also, this is also just part of human nature. And a lot of people don't realize this with how people learn languages, but the biggest predictor and shaper of the language or languages that a child will know is not the language of their parents. It's actually the language of their peers. And as a result, this happens with immigrant populations all the time. The parents arrive and they are monolingual speakers of whatever the heritage language is. They put their kids into an American school where they are taught in English and the peer language is English. And so that kid will code switch pretty well. They will be able to speak the heritage language with their parents at home and English with their peers. And then when that kid grows up and becomes a parent, um, usually the language gets lost with the next generation uh, where the peer language is English and the home language can switch back and forth more seamlessly. Uh, and that's the most common pattern with immigrants. Some successfully hold on to their heritage languages with extra effort. Um, some can create heritage language communities that support that, but most struggle to retain the language on the third generation. And that also happened with indigenous 
families as our children were sent to schools where the peer language was English, um, it shaped the everyday language usage of the kids, even if the parents were trying to teach the language to their kids. And especially if they worried about doing it, um, resisted doing it, or struggled to do it for any number of reasons, parents being busy working all the time, um, single parent households, um, a household where one of the parents speaks the tribal language and the other one doesn't, all of those things would provide extra barriers where it would just be natural for English to be the language of the home. Well, do you think there has to be a choice between fitting in, having economic and political power and maintaining your spiritual and cultural heritage in America? No, it, we do not have to make that choice. Um, I think we get that message a lot, including internally within our native communities. And I think it's a, a unfortunate and misguided message. Um, I would say we do not live in two worlds, which I hear a lot of native people say, it's one world that has many languages and many cultures. And a lot of us, myself included, have code switched to find jobs and economic opportunity and social acceptance, but we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. I think we can be successful in all the definitions of success while embracing our tribal culture, language, history, and community. Um, it's something that, I, I pay a lot of attention to with how I live my life and how I raise my children. And I don't see any reason for us to sacrifice our culture, our belief systems, um, you know, our ways of doing things, our connection to our communities in order to make it out there. You know, I have had success in what many would call like the white world. You know, I have a PhD, I've published 20 books, you know, I've had lots of career success but I choose to live in my native community for many reasons. And we, you know, we actively embrace our cultural toolbox with my children. So they all know the science and also the art of how to get food out of a tree when we tap maple trees and make maple syrup and sugar. And to me, that translates into their self-esteem and self-confidence. They just walk around mm -hmm. and think, I know how to do something. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times outside of our community, people might say, why do you spend so many hours doing that activity? It doesn't have immediate financial benefit. It's not like they're all going to be maple syrup harvesters, you know, as their career in life. And first of all, they don't know that. And some people are millionaires doing maple syrup harvesting. But more importantly, it doesn't have to have financial value to have mm -hmm. value. And the fact that they have positive self-esteem and confidence translates into their success in academics and sports and, you know, human interactions and other things. So, um, and, and very much, I feel the same way about other things in our cultural toolbox. Like one of our ceremonies, when someone has their first successful hunt, you know, they, they harvest a deer or something like that. We have a ceremony and there's a prayer and a blessing, um, you know, after the harvest and the, um, you know, food is cooked and prepared and things like that. And instead of just eating, we will ritually feed the successful hunter. So we will take a spoon of food and offer it to the successful hunter, who's usually a teenager or teeny bopper when this is going on. And we'll say their native name. So if their name happens to be Benesi meaning Thunderbird will say Benesi and hold a spoon of the food up to them. And they have to refuse the first bite and say, no, I'm thinking of children who don't have enough to eat. Ah, oh, okay. So we'll put it back, take another spoonful and say Benesi and offer it to him. And he has to refuse again and say, no, I'm thinking of my elders who can't get out into the woods to hunt for themselves. Ah, oh, okay. And we'll return the food, take another spoonful, Benesi. And the hunter will refuse again and say, no, I'm thinking of my family, my community, the people who came here today 
to support me. Ah, okay. And so then we'll offer a fourth time Benesi and then he can eat. And we'll say, well, Benesi, you just changed your life because up until today, you were what we called a dependent. You depended on everyone in this room to provide 100% of your food. But today you're providing for all of us. And that's what it means to be an adult. From today on, you'll, you'll have a special power and it's the power to gather resources. You'll have it when you hunt, when you fish, when you gather berries, even when you get a job. Use your power to think of children who don't have enough, elders who can't get it for themselves, your family and your community. And they take the rest of their kill like packaged up venison. They give it away. So they're impoverished, but rich. And to me, I, you know, I have seen the power of this. I have nine children and uh, it's formative for them. They internalize this. Both our boys and girls have gone through these ceremonies. And an example would be one time I, one of my friends was complaining. You're saying, oh, my back, it's hard for me to get out in the woods. I haven't had, you know, back straps off a deer in forever. And my 16 year old son was listening and didn't say anything, but he went out in the woods and harvested a deer and tanned the hide. And he went over to my friend's house and filled up his freezer and gave him a deer hide. And my friend was just on the verge of tears. He was saying, wow, I, I didn't even know people remembered that teaching. And the cool part for me as a parent is I didn't have to say, go do that. That's our way. He had internalized that through participating in his culture. Same mm -hmm. kid, you know, had a friend, it was prom time in high school and his friend's mom said, oh, I'll get you the tux. I'll get you the tux. I have to wait till my next check. And then something went wrong with the car and she didn't have the money. And so he was heartbroken and ready to cancel his prom date. And my son said, come on, and took him to the Goodwill. And they found a suit that fit and he bought it for him. And kid went to prom with his date and had a good time. And again, you know, I didn't have to say this is our way. He just kind of did that without Mm -hmm. or asking for anything. And so to me, what is in the cultural toolbox reflects our values as a people, but it shapes our values as a people as well. And those tools, skills, and values have great application, not just in our indigenous lives and context, but to be a healthy, fully realized human being and to be successful at whatever they set their minds to. You know, I have nine kids, three are still at home, six are out the door. You know, couple went to school at Hamlin University, one's off to Dartmouth, one wants to be a firefighter, one wants to be a midwife. You know, they all have different thoughts and ideas and goals and plans. One's an early childhood educator. Um, you know, and all their definitions of success are wonderful they're integrated into the mainstream world, but they are also deeply integrated into their indigenous culture and language. They don't live separate bifurcated dual consciousness type lives. It's an integrated world and life that is full of their language and culture, but also enables them to engage with everyone and everything else in the world around them. Mm -hmm. So let's say we have some people listening here today and they're just like, oh, he's speaking my language. He's singing my song. I, I really want to go back to my ancestral language, um, whatever that is. And um, it's endangered and there's not a lot of native speakers, particularly where they are because they're urban. Any suggestions for how to make contact with that now? Yeah, so a couple things. First of all, you know, our culture doesn't just live in a place or a ceremony or our most esteemed elder, it lives inside of us. And we can access that anywhere that we are. Um, so while learning about things like a language or culture does involve reaching out to others, forming community, joining community, things like that, it's also very introspective. And we can look within to find a lot of what we're looking for as well. And, and to have a really successful effort, we will do both. 
So it's good to tend to our introspective toolbox as well. It's kind of like the Carl Jung quote, like, you know, who looks out dreams, but who looks in awakens. And so we do need both. Um, that said, the practical dimensions of how do I find the things really vary a bit depending on what community we're talking about, because some have different kinds of resources. For example, I, you know, I'm Ojibwe, I live in Minnesota. A lot of our people live in the Twin Cities metro, but that is only a one hour drive to a drum ceremony on the St. Croix Reservation in Wisconsin, or you know, less than two hours to get to a similar ceremony in Mille Lacs. So once connected, you know, maintaining those connections, if you don't have a car, there are lots of people from Mille Lacs and St. Croix who go to those ceremonies who live in the Twin Cities. Once you start to form community, it can snowball in positive ways. I've even been in the Twin Cities a lot and picked medicines in a park and things like that. The, the natural world is all around us, even in urban spaces. Um, so we can both export ourselves to where things are happening and pick up the things that are right in front of us. In addition to that, you know, for some tribes like, like mine, there's a lot of work that is taking advantage of modern technology. So um, in January this year, we release the first year of Rosetta Stone for Ojibwe. That'll push to an app on your phone and you can access it anywhere where you have access to you know, a smartphone. Uh, we have lots and lots of really cool stuff up on the internet, YouTube videos, like um, tribal elders who are talking about different kinds of culture, um, history, understandings. Um, there are good books that can be supplements. You know, and I just want to qualify these remarks with a couple things, even with my own writing, like, um, I'm careful about boundaries with regard to these things. So some kinds of culture, like what we are talking about today can be shared in a podcast. Um, you know, our traditional harvest practices, what the deeper meaning behind many things are can be shared in, in venues like this and even put in a book. But some kinds of ceremonies, you can't get that from a book or a YouTube video you have to go to your ceremony and to your elder rather, rather than walking around them. So, you know, the tools and technology out there supplement rather than supplant um, mm -hmm. the ceremonial and cultural connectivity part of that. That said, you know, this is not easy for anybody. Um, you know, we are seeing the proliferation of really four major world languages at the expense of all others. Uh, and we are seeing the colonial enterprise continue in how we do education and many other things. And so everybody has to put in a little extra effort to maintain the vibrancy of our, you know, non-dominant or non-Western um, customs, beliefs, and practices. Uh, but there are other people who are engaged in the same struggle. And when you find community with them and work with them, it can help to address some of the connectivity, community, and just resource access that makes it all the more possible. And frankly, we become what we do, and we become who we hang out with. So I always tell people, if you want a spiritual life, then hang out with other humans, imperfect though we all are, trying to lead a spiritual life, and that will help you. Hang out outside um, and try to connect with the earth and the elements, um, and that will impact your lens for looking at the world and the vibrations you're feeling, you know, as you go throughout your day um, and go to your ceremonies and hang out with the company of other spiritually minded people and the spirits themselves that come to those ceremonies. Mm -hmm. um, 
Do you have any words of advice for people who are not native um, and they don't want to go native and meaning, you know, the pretenders, um, but they don't feel American and don't feel like they belong to the land of their ancestors either because maybe the family's been here for a while. How do those people create connection to this land, this time, and this culture? Yeah, um, I think it's important to, you know, not to appropriate anyone else's culture, anybody else's, and there's so many cultures on the world, but to explore our own more deeply. And that's for all of us. I realized that, you know, I don't know, like I live in Northern Minnesota. There are lots of white folk around here and most of them are of German, Norwegian, Swedish, and Finnish heritage. And they've been living here for five generations and they do not speak German, Norwegian, Swedish, or Finnish. And even, you know, German, Norwegian, Swedish, and Finnish cultures had been dealing with, you know, forcible conversions to Christianity for 1500 years and their kind of earth-based worldviews and religions and so forth were pretty well obliterated even before their ancestors came here and might feel like there are things missing. There are connections that they want to have um, and don't know how to go about doing that. So rather than you know, playing Indian or really anything else, I do think that there is a way to try to regrow and reconnect those roots with their own practice. So I know some who have had a sojourn back to their country of origin, some who've even found extended family members over there and found a kind of cathartic relief and reconnection that was emotionally helpful to them and helped engineer a spiritual awakening. Um, Even spending time in those places was powerful for them. Uh, I think there are a lot of ways to recultivate cultural connection um, and spiritual connection. And also, I believe that like every square inch of this planet is sacred space and that there is a spiritual energy within all of it. And even me, you know, well, I'm actually multiracial, but I, you know, and I travel a lot. And when I go to a different country that is not my country of origin in my family tree or anything like that, I still have a spiritual appreciation of that space and want to respect it, learn about it, connect with it without pretending, you know, like I was in Japan and um, one of my college roommates was Japanese and lived there and was showing me all around. And we went to Kyoto and he was showing me Shinto shrines and things like that. Some had meditative landscapes where you'd sit there, meditate, and your depth perception would shift and change. And it looked like things were moving. It was really cool. And I went there and I had a, you know, feeling of affinity and appreciation and connection, but I don't consider myself Shinto and didn't think that I was going to be playing that culture. I was mindful of the boundaries that were there and the ones that I had around my own culture as I appreciated and connected without claiming ownership of or playing at someone else's culture. And that's kind of how I'd advise non-Native people to, yes, tend to your own spiritual awakening, um, but do so without appropriating anyone else's culture. So for people who um, are aware of how brutal the history here in the U.S. has been and recognize that the pain of that is real. Any suggestions on how all sides can can heal together and move forward? Yeah, I, um, I think there are two dimensions to this. So one is, you know, each of us in our quests for individual healing from our experienced contemporary traumas, also our historical 
traumas. And then the other dimension is reconciling between groups that have um, traumatized one another or been traumatized by someone, the historical injustices. And all of those things are important. I do believe that you know, truth and reconciliation begins with truth. If you even read the Desmond Tutu book, The Book of Forgiving, he says that when there's been an injury between two individuals or between whole groups of people, you need to tell the story. Um, and you need to tell the story over and over so that you can release the pain and you can put a name to the hurt. This was genocide or whatever. And then you can get to forgiveness and either renew or release that relationship. Uh, and I think America sometimes has a hard time hold, even holding space for someone to tell the story, which really stymies some of that healing process. But a couple things to bear in mind. One is all of us as human beings have some trauma in our tree. There was someone clunking someone over the head with a club somewhere in our family far enough back in time where it could show up today as an unexplained depression or self-destructive behavior or what have you. And at the same time with some groups, when they're especially intense periods of, of trauma, it'll pop up today, but it'll pop up like popcorn. And that's with the black experience with slavery, the indigenous experience with genocide. But it's not just the bad things that get passed forward, the good things do too. And we are the humans in the history of humans who figured out how to get enough food, no matter how cold it is out there, how to cooperate, how to build things. Uh, and we should hold up those dimensions of our shared and individual experiences, not just the negative ones, but that doesn't mean we sugarcoat and turn a blind eye to those. We have to metabolize and um, deal with the pains that we have inherited. For me, Again, I turn to the cultural toolbox for individual healing and group reconciliation. For example, on our ceremonial drums, we have this ceremony when uh, someone has had a death in the family that the original person who was seated as a drum chief, uh, his son had died. And he thought, well, I don't want anything to do with these drums. Uh, they must be bad luck. And he, he motioned like he was going to leave the ceremony space and the other natives there stopped him and they grabbed him by the hands and they brought him back to his spot at the ceremony. And at that point in time, people used to rub charcoal on their face when they were grieving and they washed the charcoal off of his face and they combed out his hair and rebraided it. They piled up gifts in front of him, kind of begging him to go on with life. They, had their warriors get up and dance around the drum. And then they danced up to him and they wiped the tears from his face. And they sung a special song and lifted him up and brought him back into the circle to dance again, symbolic of carrying on with life. And today, although most of us don't put charcoal on our faces or leave our hair unbraided when we're in mourning, um, we still replicate the ceremony. And I've had deaths in my immediate family where the washing of the tears ceremony helped me heal and carry on with life. And I've had many times when I've helped other people through that ceremony and we support one another through that. That same drum ceremony was actually a gift from our neighboring tribe. The Ojibwe and Dakota used to be at war and the Dakota gifted that ceremony to us as a means of establishing peace and they said it was against the will of the great spirit that both of us were being killed off and that we were killing one another and the drum provided protection and a pathway to peace for us and so we still honor those teachings and this tremendous gift we received from our neighboring tribe we actually sing the ceremony songs with their in their tribal language um, as part of honoring that tradition and today the Ojibwe and Dakota are fast friends and regularly support one another in cultural things, 
in political things and all kinds of things. And so I feel like there are a lot of ways to engineer individual healing as well as communal and group reconciliation. Mm. That's a great story. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us for this edition of Modern Animism Radio. Uh, Dr. Troy, can you tell us where to find the cultural toolbox and your other books and maybe a website where we can learn more about you and any events you have coming up? Sure. So all of my books are available in bookstores all around the country. They're up on Amazon and pretty easy to find. And uh, I do personally like to patronize a lot of the indie bookstores. So, you know, if you're in the Twin Cities, Birchbark Books, and there are many others in, in, in whatever community you live in. So um, lots of ways to get the books. My website is just antontroyer.com and it's spelled A-N-T-O-N-T-R-E-U-E-R.com. There are links to all the books there free resources. I've got a YouTube channel with lots of free talks and they kind of are organized into playlists. Some related to our language, some are related to culture, some are kind of on racial equity things and uh, all of that free to explore. Cool. I'll put that in our show notes. And thank you so much, Dr. Troyer, for being here. Thanks everybody for listening. Please share this show if you know somebody who needs to hear it. And if you'd like to support our work here at Pan Society, go to patreon.com and become an insider or patreon.com forward slash Pan Society. And be sure to subscribe to our channel so that you'll be notified when the next podcast posts. I'm Laura Giles. See you next week.